Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When you see George Floyd under the boot of Caesar, you must hear the words of Scripture. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? All of you were standing at a distance seeing these things. Do you not know that God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong? Have you not heard that if you cause the weaker brother harm, it would be better for you to have a heavy millstone hung around your neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea? This week's show is dedicated to the eternal memory of George Floyd. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 12 to 14. This year's Biblical Symposium of the Orthodox Center for the Advancement of Biblical Studies will be held online Saturday, June 13, 2020. Space is limited to 100 attendees, so register today by going to ephesusschool.org. Father William Mills, author of Losing My Religion, is the featured keynote speaker. Other presenters include the Very Reverend Dr. Paul Nadim Tarazi, Dr. Nikolai Roddy, Professor of Hebrew Bible and Old Testament at Creighton University, and Dr. Richard Benton and Father Mark Bulos of the Bible as Literature podcast. Register today by going to ephesusschool.org. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 332 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We continue our movement through the Gospel of Matthew with the repeated emphasis on taking care of the weaker brother. I want to come back to a point that we've made in previous episodes, Richard, that there is no middle ground on the priority of the weaker brother. In case anyone missed it, there is no middle ground on the question of wearing masks. Put a piece of cloth over your face. What's the big deal? You can make all the arguments and quote all of the fly-by-night blogs with the word news or daily added to them .org or .com and explain to me how you don't believe the New York Times. I don't care. If there is a chance, even a slim chance, that putting a piece of cloth over your mouth will keep others from getting sick, you are bound by the gospel to submit. Likewise, it doesn't matter what explanation you give 
When a man is laying on the ground under someone's knee, crying out for his mother and saying, I can't breathe, there is no middle ground. There is no rationalization. There's no discussion. There's no backstory. If you are for the cause of the gospel, you are pure in heart, which means you know what the mission is and your intention is true like a Roman soldier. There is no, well, what if, have you considered, there's the possibility people who speak this way work for the devil. It reminds me very much of all the blathering around the execution of Jesus. Well, there's the regulations of the Torah, and then there's the question of philosophical truth, Pontius Pilate. No, there's the question of the abuse and execution of this person. The man under the police officer's knee, under the boot of Caesar, as we like to say on this program, was plainly the weaker brother. He was publicly portrayed as the weaker brother, to borrow from St. Paul's letter. And everyone standing by said what and did what. An African-American colleague of mine sent me a list that's been circulating on the internet about what white people can do about racism. And when I looked at this list of 75 things, so many of them were simply read things. Why would an African-American say, read this stuff? Because I'm ignorant. Because I don't know the first thing. Most of us white people, especially in the United States, do not know the history of how our forefathers treated others in this country and how much pressure we as part of that system are putting on others to be more like us. Jesus has been speaking in this entire chapter, I must do whatever it takes, even cutting out my own eyeballs, to take care of those who are weaker than me. When our culture says those that are weaker than me are faulty and therefore should be more like me. This culture is telling those who are under the boot to cut off their own arms and cut off their own legs so they can be more like us, which is precisely the opposite of what Jesus is saying to do in the gospel. It's like when people are complaining, oh, you know, we support any kind of peaceful protests, but when there were peaceful protests, they were complaining that they were the wrong peaceful protests. The rich and the powerful were making those who are weak and underfoot to go and do things differently and jump through this hoop and do this dance and is insulting. When Jesus time and again emphasizes, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, that you are not allowed to scandalize, you may not scandalize those that are weaker than you. And you must do everything. Everything isn't just give away all your money. It's cut off your own arm. It's pluck out your own eye. Because an eye or an arm that oppresses somebody who is smaller than you, who is weaker than you, will prevent you from entering the kingdom of heaven. As an Arab born in Minnesota, both my parents are immigrants. I can speak clearly about why racism is such a huge problem in Minneapolis. It's because of the expectation of conformity. James Baldwin talks about this often when he talks about American history and the whitewashing or the suppression of history to deny the truth of the American experience. The pressure to fit in, which we call white, the pressure to become white is felt by 
everyone who comes to these shores. The difference between me and a black man is that because of the color of my skin, I'm a fair-skinned Arab. Because of the color of my skin, I can stop standing out as a man with history, and I can pretend to be a consumer at the local shopping mall who has no past. I can pretend to be white if I need to. That's the problem in Minnesota. I believe white people when they say they're not racist, because in their mind, they just want everyone to conform to this identity that has no history, so that it doesn't have to look at its own history of abuse. So when they say they're not racist, what they're saying is, we just want everyone to fit in. The problem is that the black man can't fit in. He can change his accent. He can change what he eats. He can change how he dresses. He can change everything, but he cannot erase the color of his skin. So it is high time we submit to the teaching of the Apostle Paul that the truth of God's instruction is not about telling people what to be or what to become. It's about submitting to them out of deference for Christ and welcoming them to his table of fellowship before the throne of the Father. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? Where we place emphasis on conforming and making everyone in our image, in the Gospel of Matthew, making everyone twice as much a child of hell as ourselves by proselytizing them, whether we force them into a melting pot or we force them into our ideology or our theology. In Scripture, the whole thing is flipped around. Jesus is a shepherd. He cares for the flock. His interest is in the needs of the weaker brother, the one who's most in jeopardy, the one who strays from the group. That's the one he's concerned with. Not only is he the one that he's concerned with, he is the only one that he is concerned with. When Jesus said in the last verse, the Son of Man came to save what was lost, the reason he came was to find the one who was lost. That's his job. So when you think Jesus is for you first, and secondly, for the one who's on the margins, you've got it backwards. He's for the one on the margins, and he's not for you. You're second. You're doing fine. Sheep are not as vulnerable when they're in a flock. I mean, just naturally. Because when a predator comes, they squeeze together. The most vulnerable are on the inside and the strongest are on the outside to fight away the predator. The one that's vulnerable is the one that leaves because they have no protection. You have the protection of your group. You don't need God. Jesus, the Son of Man, came for the one who was lost. That is the reason he came. Now, maybe you were lost at some point and you were brought in. But now you're safe. You're in the flock. When you heard the call, you decided to come and join this group. So now you're in the flock, and now you're under God's aegis. But that's not Jesus's job as Son of Man. It's to go and find the one that went away. So God's work, so to speak, like we say colloquially, is to reach out to the ones who are on the margins, is to help those who 
are not protected by the group to help those that are vulnerable in the elements. If we want to do God's work, that's the only work that the Son of Man came to do. If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. You have to take care of the weaker brother. When you have six children and five of them are able to eat meals and they keep the food down and their bodies function normally, you don't worry about them. You worry about the one child who has a stomach virus who can't eat. That's the child that deserves your attention in that moment. That child is the weaker brother of the six. And so you focus all of your attention on trying to find a way to help the child hold food down so they can fight the viral infection. The other five don't need the parent right now. You care for the one in need. Scripture has common sense. The brother of George Floyd spoke at the state capitol in St. Paul, Minnesota, and he had a call to action to our community. Where's everybody's common sense? What don't you see in the public crucifixion of my brother that isn't self-evident as criminal? We don't have common sense because we rationalize. We think to ourselves whatever we need to think to ourselves to justify ourselves because we're one of the five children who don't have the stomach virus. And food tastes fine and we're able to digest it just fine. What's this guy's problem? We as human beings naturally tell lies to ourselves. We lie to ourselves. And the most believable lie is the lie that suits the majority, that allows the majority to ignore the suffering of the minority or the one. But God is not the shepherd of the majority. Scripture is not a democracy. God isn't interested in popularity polls. God is the shepherd of all. He is the master of both Jew and Greek, and he is the shepherd of the whole flock, including the one that strays from the body, and he goes after it. Once the sick child is well, the parent is not rejoicing that everybody ate their meal. The parent is happy that that one was able to eat. For all of you who are in the flock, who are on the inside, the Son of Man does not rejoice that you are in the flock. It says he doesn't rejoice over you. If you're on the inside, he says that he does not rejoice as much over the entirety of the 99 than he does over the one that he was able to bring into the flock. So where are your priorities? I mean, this is a time when we as ideologues in this country like to circle the wagons and protect our flock. Well, first of all, you no longer are counting on God to protect you. You are counting on your compatriots 
to protect you. So you're no longer interested in being shepherded. And secondly, you are no longer rejoicing in the thing that the Son of Man rejoices in. The Son of Man is only rejoicing in the one who was outside, on the margins, vulnerable, who is able to bring in and protect, and that's the one he rejoiced over. And if you don't recognize the connection to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're not hearing the Gospel of Matthew, let alone the story of the New Testament. The majority executed Jesus. There was majority agreement of both Jew and Gentile. On the Jewish side, under the synagogue, they accused him of blasphemy. On the Roman side, the Greek side, under the law of the state, they accused him essentially of the same thing, of treason, which is blasphemy because Caesar was the son of God in the eyes of the Roman Empire and Roman law. So he was executed. He was the little one who was thrown away, and his father rejoiced in his vengeance against the human court in the resurrection in Romans. The father himself, by the power of the Spirit, raised his son. He brought back the one who was lost and outcast just as Jesus does for a disciple in this parable. So there's an additional point that you're a fool if you think that because as a majority you've decided that someone's not enough like you that they can be cast aside, you're a fool if you think that the Father of Jesus won't set things straight in the judgment. When people feel despair, they like to quote Ecclesiastes like, there's nothing we can do, nothing's going to change. With all due respect, in Ecclesiastes, there is a judgment, there is accountability. And the hope that is preached in the Gospel of Matthew is that this judgment, when it is consigned to God alone, as we hear it through the story of the text, has the power to rescue the lost sheep and thus save the majority, the flock, from judgment by making the threat of judgment in the resurrection a reality to us now. In this sense, when we hear the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of God is at hand, as the Baptist proclaimed. When you see George Floyd under the boot of Caesar, you have to hear Scripture. It's so plain, Richard. It was so hard for me not to hear Scripture looking at that man's execution. He was publicly portrayed as crucified. Everyone was standing afar off watching. It was a great shame. Shame on us. Shame on all of us. And simply arresting those police officers won't expiate the shame. We have to hear the cry of the poor and the authority of the apostolic voice in God's holy scroll. We have to hear Paul and we have to submit to the lost sheep. Once and for all, 
It doesn't matter what people think or who they are. It matters only that we submit to one another out of deference to Jesus Christ. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Again, it's not just the will of the Son of Man. The Son of Man didn't just decide he was going to go out and save the little ones. He is following his Father's will to take care of these little ones. It shouldn't be lost to us that at the beginning of this sermon of Jesus, he says that all have to become like little children. If we do not see ourselves as the one with the boot on our own neck, then what are we? We haven't become like little children, the one who is vulnerable and dependent. Your Father, which is in heaven, only cares that the little ones, the ones who have gone astray, the ones who are on the margin, the ones who are vulnerable, are taken care of. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.